Thank you for listening to another edition of the Perfectus podcast brought to you by Perfectus magazine. I'm Ben Wilterdink, and today my co-editor Clay Rutledge and I are joined by Dr. Angela Rashidi. Dr. Rashidi is a senior fellow and the Rowe Scholar in Opportunity and Mobility Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where she studies poverty and the effects of the federal safety net programs on low-income people in America. Before joining AEI, Dr. Rashidi spent almost a decade researching benefits programs for low-income populations in New York City. She is the author of numerous articles and studies, but today we're going to focus our comments on her most recent report, The Evidence on Family Affordability. So Angela, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Well, I want to get started by just giving some broad context for this conversation and about family formation in America. So for the two people who might not know, uh, at a very high level, as you know, in your paper, uh, after a 50 year decline, marriage rates uh, have now hit a record low. Uh, And furthermore, rates of fertility have also persistently been below the 2.1 kids per woman replacement rate since about 2007. Uh, These are trends that a lot of people have observed and are talking about. Can you walk us through just why that is something we should be concerned about at all? Oh, sure. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I'll add to this isn't the, at least in terms of the declining fertility rate, not unique to the United States. Um, And actually there's some Asian countries in particular that are probably in worse shape than, than even, than even we are. Um, And when I say worse shape, I guess that's, you know, speaks to your question of why, why is this an issue? Why should we care? Um, You know, I think there's actually some competing views on that. (laughs) Um, There's one view that actually thinks, oh, maybe it's not such a bad thing thinking about uh, it in terms of population and climate and, you know, the taking care of the earth. But I actually kind of fall into the other camp where it is concerning. Um, So the reason getting below replacement rate can be concerning uh, is because you think of, I guess there's a variety of reasons, but the main one in my mind is really kind of an economic and prosperity one. Um, If you think specifically about the U.S., if you have a declining population, you think about who, who is going to take care of and support uh, the, the population that already exists, especially in the U.S., kind of the aging population. Um, and so you need young people, you need population <laughs> to kind of fuel economic growth um, and fuel kind of that, that prosperity for, everybody, for everyone. Um, and we can see in some countries that kind of pre had trends that even predated the U.S., like Japan, for example, um, they've had a very low uh, fertility rate for a while. Um, they're just starting to experience some of those problems now in terms of very slow economic growth. Although there's other things contributing to it, but certainly low fertility rates are one, um, you know, slow economic growth and then a lot of challenges just trying to keep up uh, with taking care of an aging population. Um, and so those are just, a, you know, a few reasons. Um, and there's certainly a lot of other more societal kind of quality of life type issues. Um, but I would say the economic uh, concerns are probably the most most prominent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it, I would add, you know, to those, you know, which connects with economics that, you know, I thought about this a lot, like, what is a, you know, when we think about flourishing, we think about growth, expansion, like, 
you know, what is a what does society or a culture look like in terms of the motivation to solve problems to improve the world when there aren't children or a world without children, right? And I mean, that sounds like dystopian. I'm not saying there's not going to be any children, but you know what I mean? It's like they're constant when you see kids and families, it's a constant reminder that there's a future beyond yourself worth caring about. And so I, I think that that angle is interesting, too, that the, the first group you mentioned that maybe are like, oh, it's fine if we retract because of climate change. I don't think it really thought through like, well, who's going to care about the planet <laughs> if you know, if we're retracting as a species, like then that actually might make us more hedonistic or more impulsive or more like centered on, on the present. Um, you know, I just thought that that those societal issues could obviously connect to the economics as well. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think you're exactly right. And I mean, it's just kind of human nature to always want to improve and, um, you know, move things forward and leave things better for the next generation. And you're right. If, if that's, not a realistic goal that there's going to be that next generation. It does kind of just shift, shift to the way you think and shift, shift motivations. Yeah. Yeah. And that can, that can definitely be a, a big challenge, uh, especially as we think about the things that we care about in terms of innovation and, and the things that, that make our, our own lives better too. But um, so uh, this is definitely something that people have been researching uh, pretty often talking about uh, a lot Probably the most common uh, explanation for this that I I get in just anecdotally in some of my conversations with people and peers um, of mine is that it's too expensive. It's just it's way too expensive to raise a family now. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, just in in 2021, Money Magazine uh, had a headline: Millennials aren't having kids because it's too expensive. Uh, Morning Consult ran a 2020 poll that said nearly three in five childless millennials say a reason they don't have kids is because it's too expensive to raise them. Um, I can tell you everyone, you know, probably knows this, but from personal experience, childcare is a very expensive um, cost. And so that's, I know that's at least one big part of it. Um, so thinking through that, do you, what do you think of that narrative? Um, it's clearly something that has gained some uh, cultural purpose or purchase uh, in our society. So what, what do you think, what do you make of that? Yeah, so the, those headlines that you mentioned are actually exactly why I wrote the paper that you mentioned earlier, um, the report on family affordability, because I, I agree that that when people first identify concerns about declining fertility, it's natural to want to identify the cause. Um, and overwhelmingly, you hear that it's a financial one, that people are just saying it's too expensive. So my motivation for writing the report I wrote was to kind of take a very high level look at, well, has it actually gotten more expensive um, to raise a family? And um, uh to kind of make a very long and complicated story short, um, again, I looked kind of a high level, but um, in my view, um, we actually, I don't think there's strong data to show that things have actually gotten more expensive. I think what, um, but that doesn't mean those polls are wrong. I think what has changed is people's perceptions about what maybe are necessary goods and what people want out of life. And by that, I mean, you know, maybe in the past, um, one car, for example, I'll just give a quick example, one car was maybe sufficient for a household. 
um, and uh, families figured out how to get by with just one car. Um, now two or even three cars are necessary. And some people might say, oh, well, yeah, but now we have two workers, so we have to have two cars. And yes, that is true. But I think the, the idea of people's preferences for maybe slightly more luxurious cars or cars that make people more comfortable, that actually, in my view, if you really look at the data, is what's driving these increased costs. Housing is another example. I mean, the square footage per person, if you look at data, um, we just have much, much larger homes um, uh, than in the past 20, you know, 50 years. And so I think people's preferences certainly have changed and it's driving increased costs. And so to the extent that that reflects a lack of affordability, you know, I think is is debatable. It depends on really what you define as affordable. And should we be thinking about affordability in terms of meeting everybody's preferences? Or should we be thinking about it in terms of meeting people's basic needs? And I think that is where kind of an interesting debate can be had. That's a really good point. I mean, certainly it's the case like, you know, I'm one of five kids and I remember my brother and I shared a bedroom and the house I grew up in with, you know, a family of seven is smaller than the house that my wife and I live in with our toy poodle. Because <laughs> our, our kids are in their 20s, they, they've moved out. Um, but so, yeah, that, that you know, that perception, um, it's that's just to say, like, you know, if, it, we're all guilty of it. I think at some level of like changing preferences and then you have to remind yourself it's a difference between what you want and what you need. Right. And I always think of it too, you know, I'm, whenever we have this discussion about declining fertility and then, oh, well, if the, if the cause is financial, the conversation then naturally leads to, well, what can, what can we do about that? And then that mm -hmm. naturally leads to, well, let's have a government response. Right. Um, and so from my mind, that, that question of, is this, you know, a desire to meet people's preferences or a desire to meet their basic needs is crucially important when you think of what is a potential solution. Because if it's a government solution, if it's government intervention, then you start talking about redistribution. So mm -hmm. taking, you know, taxpayer dollars, redistributing it. And I think that then that the answer to that question, are we are we thinking about redistributing dollars to meet people's preferences? Or are we thinking of redistributing dollars to meet people's basic needs, that to me becomes a very important kind of policy question. Um, and then you just think of all the, you know, kind of consequences of, uh, you know, more government spending and, and more redistribution. And it starts to kind of make the, the question and answer less clear cut than I think a lot of people would, would initially think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once you start getting into what the government role could be, should be um, preferences versus needs is is definitely a conversation worth having. You know, as you're sort of describing these changes in preferences, I wonder. It occurs to me a lot of a lot of people I know, and I think I think this is reflected in the data as well, are getting married later. Um, that seems to be a trend, and they probably are having more of their life happening when they are either single uh, and, you know, usually um, 
you know, making, making that, that money and not having the dependence or where they're in a relationship and they're in a dual income, you know, space for a longer period of time before they get married and before they have kids. So I wonder how much of that preference is based around, or the change in preference is based around the fact that, you know, you're living at a particular lifestyle at a particular income level with no dependence. And then you're kind of looking at it and saying, what, what do I need to do to continue my current lifestyle and income level while also adding those dependents? Um, and that's, so do you think that that could be a part of it? Do you think that that's um, something that's going on here as well? I, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think it's, it's partly that you know, people just getting married later. Um, but then the reason people tend to get married later uh, is largely because of the pursuit of education um, and especially among women. So if you really think about, you know, we always kind of look to like the 1960s or 1950s kind of comparing I mean, it was just a very different environment for women in particular, uh, just around what kind of society expected from them. Um, and obviously that has shifted greatly over the past you know, half century, um, which has been a very positive thing for women in terms of getting you know, higher education, uh, you know, the opportunity for careers, um, you know, earning the earning potential for women. But that does mean that women have delayed marriage um, and then also uh, as a, a, I guess, consequence of that delay, delay childbearing. And so I think you're exactly right that you know, over the last probably 40 plus years, we've sent this message um, to young girls, women in particular about, you know, th there's opportunity for you get a career, you know, earn. And it does, I think, change kind of what the expectations are, um, for life. And again, all positive things, but I think we have to recognize that those positive things do have other effects. Um, and we just have to think about how those other effects or how we can deal with some of those other effects or even have, you know, other, um, kind of counter messaging um, about what what people in general, men and women, um, really want to get out of out of life, and how children kind of children and family play into that. So when when people say they are it's it's unaffordable, it sounds the way we're framing it sounds rational, like they're doing some kind of analysis they've got a spreadsheet and they're like running the numbers and they're like you know I, I can't afford to have a family obviously when we start talking about like what your argument of well this is probably more of a perception than it maps onto like an objective reality then you start to think about well it's not just rational there's an emotional component perhaps we also know that young people are more anxious today than in previous generations. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you could say this is an economic anxiety, but it might speak to a broader anxiety, which is just like, it takes guts to, to put yourself out there and start a family. I mean, there's obviously a certain level of health risk. Um, of course, it's safer than it was in the past, you know. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a little bit of yet to embrace uncertainty. You have to embrace a little bit of chaos in your life. Like it's so. I'm wondering if you think that 
um, this really is a specific like perception about like it's unaffordable or that is a, a there's a broader category of like young people are just more risk averse and starting a family involves like you know letting go a little bit of control and a willingness to sort of take you know to kind of take risk and have an adventure in life i guess so to speak um and if there if that might that kind of anxiety might be influencing their perceptions and if that's the case then you know from my perspective all the data it might be hard to persuade them with the type of data you bring to bear because it's like that's that's activating a more rational mode of thinking um but you know they're kind of terrified i mean when i talk to young people they act like they're terrified to have kids because of climate change, because of the costs, because of like, you know, um, you know, there's a growing life form in their body or, you know, you hear all these different things and it, and it does seem to be like, there's a more like general anxiety around, around becoming a parent. Yeah, I do. I think you're exactly right. I think there is a psychology to it. Um, and I mean, the hard part is it's, you know, what data do we have to really support that? Like you cited, mm -hmm. you know, there's some polls, you can ask people. Um, but I think that what you're describing is kind of a societal shift we've seen in younger generations. And I do think it's playing out just in the decisions and the risks that they take. Um, I think there's also, there's been a shift, um, you know, and, and you can kind of see this in some of the data, but again, it's, there's hard things to measure, but there's just been this shift um, in kind of people expecting to be comfortable um, in their <laughs> lives all the time. <laughs> um, and I think actually, to be honest, I think the Great Recession played into this a little bit because there was such a robust government response and the expectation was, oh, government's going to jump in. And, you know, if you lost your job, um, you know, I think it started in the Great Recession, certainly during the pandemic, that was the message that was sent. Um, you know, if you, and I'll say on the economic side, not necessarily on the public health side, but on the economic side, it was like, oh, we don't want anybody to, you know, experience any discomfort at all in terms of your, your um, household finances. So government's going to jump in and help you. So I think that does kind of set this mindset of just being very risk averse, expecting everything to be easy, to be comfortable. Um, and I, th and certainly having, getting married and having children is not always comfortable. <laughs> it's not always easy. Um, and I do think it creates a lot of anxiety. Um, and then I, I'll just add or kind of finish with, I think that there's no counter message. I think that mm -hmm. that that has sort of been missing too, that you don't have a lot of stories about just the benefits of having um, children, having a supportive family, the benefits of being married, having a you know lifelong partner. I think sometimes those messages um, get a little bit uh, you know missed when we're just talking about how unaffordable everything is and how right. you know how all of these things kind of create barriers to your life rather than how they enhance them. Yeah, I think that's right. It reminds me of every now and then you see a uh, a business publication, like publish some type of piece about here's how much it costs women and lifetime earnings to have kids. And it's in a very like you're losing. And it's like, well, how do you calculate all the benefits of having a family in my own research on meaning in life, for instance? I mean, the most the most by far the most prominent source of meaning in life when you ask people is family. It's like, well, that doesn't come out of thin air. You have to actually keep creating that. And so I think that's a, there's an interesting um, 
you know, on the economic side, there is this interesting, like cold, rational kind of like, oh, your lifetime or you could have more wealth if you didn't have kids. And it's just like, that's such an incomplete picture of what it means to have a fulfilling life that I, I agree with you. That messaging is very incomplete and, and odd. Yeah. Well, and I'll just add too. I mean, I mentioned this before about kind of the changing messages for women, but I almost wonder if there was sort of an overcorrection that the the message for so long, I mean, I grew up in the, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the message certainly was women can do everything, you know, go to college, you know, get the job. Um, it was really an economic message and, you know, equality that you can earn just as much as men can. Um, you know, you hear all the information about the wage gaps. And I do think that, you know, again, all of that was very positive um, so that women could succeed. But I do wonder if maybe there was an overcorrection and it, in, in, in place of um, uh, the, you know, the drive to achieve economically and, and from a career perspective, the, the idea of having a fulfilling life that involves family and involves children just was net, that message was never sent. <laughs> um, and I think that that for women in particular, um, probably has held them back from the perspective of having that fulfilling kind of holistic life. Um, certainly women are doing very well on the economic side, you know, pursuing careers, um, earning potential. Uh, but you do see some evidence of women who maybe have been remained childless, things like that, that they do feel like something's missing uh, in their life. And so I think we need more a more well-rounded uh, message. Yeah, it strikes me as very challenging to get that across though, because, you know, we're, we're in a context, I mean, you're at the American Enterprise Institute. We do work at the Archbridge Institute on, on upward mobility and, you know, the, the method of communication is this rational, generally more numbers-based data, data-centered, data-driven. Uh, and that just does not seem to fit super well with with this other side. So if there is going to be kind of that counter narrative or some of the other messaging or even not even counter necessarily, just kind of rounding out to make sure that people are getting a bit more of a holistic look. I think that's something that people used to see maybe more in their lives. They used to experience it more in, in their own lives or see people around them with that. Um, you know, it makes me think about the, the the declines in traditional religion, really, really sharp declines in things like church attendance, where that vision of what the family life is, is just missing from a lot of people's experience. Um, you know, as a millennial or, you know, Gen Z, you know, they might not know anyone who's ever set foot in a church, let alone mm -hmm. gone to like a family picnic, you know, with like other families and things. So it's, do you think that that plays into it where they're just, they're not getting that message. It's hard to communicate that message using reason and data in the way that we might uh, usually try to persuade people or send messages. And like that experiential side of it, it's just, it's sort of lacking. Um, do, you, do you think there's something to that? Or do you think that that seems to me to be a major challenge of kind of mounting a response? I do. Yes. Um, and I actually touched on this a little bit in the report I wrote because I, I touched on it in the sense of uh, discussing social capital. 
Um, and so social capital is kind of, you know, what you describe in terms of having connections in the community, um, you know, uh, institutions like churches, uh, school associations, things like that, that kind of keeps you connected to other people who are outside of your family. Um, and so there's some evidence to suggest that social capital has kind of declined um, uh, over the past several years, even you know, a couple decades, um, evidenced by declining church going, for example, declining, you know, people kind of express that they have fewer connections. Um, so if you kind of following your train of thought, if you think if, if you believe that social capital has declined and people are kind of less connected to each other, I think you're exactly right that that kind of modeled behavior of family, having children, uh, you know, uh, doing things that families do, uh, people just aren't as exposed to it as they as they used to be. Uh, and then people, when it kind of reflects preferences again, as people sort of move out of center city, central cities, get the bigger homes, bigger yards, it's just there's less interaction um, that people have. And so in my report, I kind of make both arguments that one, that actually probably raises the costs of um, uh, raising a family because you don't have that network to rely on. And then in the same respect, uh, because you don't have those connections, I think to your point, um, it's not kind of modeling family behavior that then can sort of be passed down to the next generation. So I do definitely think that that's, that's a piece of it. Um, but to your point, it is a harder thing to measure and, and, and a hard thing to kind of to ask about. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, it, it, there's so many things in there that are, I agree, are hard to measure. But I mean, like, here's a good example. Like, and I don't know if this is like a real trend or just something I see online, but like child-free weddings. Or, you know, the, it just seems like our, like, there's more and more where people are not very, or you see stories about kids like crying on an airplane and people being upset. Like, like the society is becoming less tolerant of the chaos that children bring. And I was in a, a movie theater not that long ago and to be honest it was like a kid's movie like it was a movie that kids should be I wasn't at a rated R movie um and I remember like afterwards somebody complaining about like they it was a younger person and said something about oh that's that's good birth control because they're like kids like yelling in the theater or whatever and I was I was kind of taken aback a little because like I had the opposite response like during the movie when I heard kids laughing and yelling or whatever I was like this is awesome like these kids are really happy like they're bringing like some you know they're they're bringing joy <laughs> to this experience again I could see the difference if I was like at the opera or at like a, a rated R movie or something that was clearly an adult themed event that would have been inappropriate maybe to bring children to but this was like a PG movie that families would go to and so I just um, but I don't know how to, you know, I don't know if that's a widespread thing, but it does seem like just from my own anecdotal experience, I see less tolerance for the messiness that children bring to society. And that would, if that's true, that that is widespread, then that would also discourage, you know, because people be like, well, why would I, why would I want to do that? This isn't something that people are going to look at as like a net positive. They're going to look at it as a burden to society. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, I have to just laugh based on what you just described because I have four kids. Um, and so I'm a sample of one, but have experienced much of that intolerance um in my life, um, to you know, just being with my kids from the, you know, being at the park, being yelled at, why don't you watch your kids? <laughs> to, um, to various things. Um, and I yeah, I completely agree. Again, sample of one, but I do think that society actually makes it harder to have kids kids, um, just from the perspective of, you know, like you can't even, I, with four kids, you, it's hard to even just get a hotel room anymore because they have right. all these rules mm -hmm. about how many people can be in a room. Um, and just like various things like the airplane is another one in the airport. And yeah, so I don't, I, I think the interesting thing though, is where does that intolerance come from? Because people still are having kids, uh, and most, right. you know, most, people that you interact with, they might have older kids, but like people still have exposure to kids. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure where that intolerance comes from. Um, assuming it's there, like you said, I guess we don't have right. a great way to measure it, but I certainly do get this sense um, that that, that is true and in, in something that that's out there and it likely does play into this um, kind of trend that we're seeing in terms of fertility and just people expressing the, an unwillingness to have kids. Yeah. I, maybe you will all will remember or know what I'm talking about more than I do, but it reminds me of, I did see something not that long ago, maybe it's from the Institute of Family Studies. I can't remember. That was like, we tend to think we tend to describe fertility in terms of um, in terms of the mean or the average, right? Like here's the average number of kids, but like if, um, but that could mean there's a bunch of people having three or four kids and a bunch of people having zero, right? Um, and so the distribution might not might tell a different story. So I'm just curious if um, it, uh, and I bring that up because that speaks to this issue. It could be there are like subcultures or spaces in which like people are having a bunch of kids. They're obviously it's a pronatal like environment and you're used to being in spaces like that. But then it could be part of our society really just has no kids um, or, or one kid. And so it, and so there might be like almost like a polarizing effect that doesn't map on maybe to politics cleanly, but it's like the. The, the no kids versus, you know, not antenatal versus pronatal, but you know what I mean? Like the, the childless versus child, like environments. And I, um, I don't know that am I making that up or do you know what I'm talking about that? that yeah, no, I, I do re recall seeing some data. So I, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that I remember seeing that the percentage of people who go childless that has increased. Um, yeah. so people not having kids at all has increased. Um, but to your point, I, that doesn't, I don't think that explains at all. Um, mm -hmm. and I think people are having fewer kids, but it gets back to the point about people getting married later and just not mm -hmm. having kind of the time <laughs> to have maybe as many kids as they had. But to your point, I mean, there's certainly still parts of the country like Utah, for example, they still, you know, it's a very 
Mormon-based culture, um, they still have, um, you know, higher uh, average number of kids per uh, per married family or per woman or however you want to measure it. Um, and so there, there still obviously is, um, you know, a, a subpopulation, to use your word, that, that kind of believes in, you know, having a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's important to point out too, because it's not all about just people not wanting to have kids. Um, you know, I think part of this is, you know, people getting married later, so they can't quite meet their fertility goals. Um, and, uh, just kind of other things that are happening, uh, in people's lives that kind of delay that, that then they can't, they can't quite reach those goals. Um, but then some people are reaching those goals. So, um, you know, it's certainly, certainly a more complicated issue than just kind of one answer. Yeah, you know, as you're describing, you know, the movie theater situation and, and you know, some of the other things of people being more irritated uh, with kids, uh, you know, it makes me think a word that we hear a lot now is atomized, right? Where people mm-hmm. are very much kind of islands unto themselves. And it, and it almost does seem like if you couple that with a sense of like, well, that's your choice. That's your choice, but it should also be your responsibility I'm kind of here in my siloed bubble by myself and you're bumping in your bubble, my bubble with your kids, you know, being loud or something. And it's, it seems to me that 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 might be kind of a result of just like the way that we've gone culturally, where it's, it's a little bit more individualized. It's less, less people viewing themselves as part of a community and there are kids in that community and that's a healthy and good thing. Um, And it just makes me think that, you know, that's, um, people, people are just not exposed to it as much. And so it's Mm. jarring, Um, you know, when they are, it's just, it's something abnormal kind of puncturing in on, uh, on what they're, on what they're getting at. So, I mean, I'm happy to, to have you um, respond uh, to that as well, but I do want to make sure that we touch on this idea about marriage and getting, um, and people getting married a little bit later. And there's some other things that go along with that. So I'll let you, uh, kind of weigh in on that too, if you think, if you think there's something to that. Yeah. Well, in in terms of the marriage question, I mean, that to me is also, it it does in my mind reflect a kind of societal shift in just what marriage is and Institute for Family Studies. um, Brad Wilcox is a colleague of mine at AEI. He kind of writes a lot about this, just expectations around marriage and how that has really changed, um, changed over time. Um, and, you know, again, it's probably a positive thing, but the expectation for marriage now is you find your soulmate, you find this person that, you know, fulfills every, every potential that, you know, desire you have in your life. Whereas it kind of, you know, at least historically and in other cultures hasn't, that hasn't always been, um, what marriage is about and just, you know, not, not that one way is better or worse. It's just, we have to recognize that when that changes, um, it does kind of change then who sees marriage as a realistic, uh, kind of goal for them, um, individually. And so, so yes, as marriage declines, that certainly has, you know, very profound effects on, on family formation. Um, and, 
I think it could be, you know, messaging obviously plays another role, um, but economics plays a role as well. Um, marriage has mm -hmm. become less necessary from an economic perspective, again, because women have their own earning potential. And so if marriage is not necessary from an economic perspective, it does force people to think about what is the purpose of marriage. And I think that's still, still kind of up for individual interpretation on <laughs> what that is. And I think that that definitely has contributed to probably less marriage um, in our society. Yeah, just following up on that, I, I recently saw a discussion between uh, Brookings Institution scholar Richard Reeves and yeah. uh, with your AEI colleague, uh, Ian Rowe, uh, who we had on this podcast not too long ago. Uh, but they were talking about this this issue about marriage and and Richard was talking about some of the data uh, around how marriage has transitioned from more of a cornerstone model where you do it earlier and you build a life together, you know, around that versus a capstone model, which is, you know, I'm generalizing, but it's kind of, you know, I've got my debts paid off. Maybe I've paid off my student loans. I'm decently advanced in my career. Maybe I've already got a house. Uh, and then getting married is kind of like, okay, I've got everything in order and now I can kind of put that bow on the top there and do that. And so, and that seems to me to be very related to the, to the economic changes. Uh, I think the statistic he quoted was something like in 1970, it was like 13% of women were earning more than men. And uh, more recently around today, I don't know the exact date, uh, but it was, it was very recent, something like 40% of women were earning more than men. Um, so still, you know, less than half, but that's a pretty big change um that's that's a a pretty big change in the span of like one generation uh and so it's it shouldn't be too surprising that that there are some other things that are changing along with that yeah i mean i completely agree um and that certainly i think contributes to why we see marriage happening less and happening later i think the question yeah like as i kind of listen to you i think the question for me is just you know, is, is that something we need to change or uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, is that just, does that evolve? Because obviously you have women who have had, um, you know, more economic success. So it changes kind of what, what makes marriage necessary. Um, or so do we just accept those changes, which I think is what Richard Reeves argument generally is. It's kind of like, well, we just, it is what it is. So you accept those changes. Um, or do we try to make marriage more attractive to people? I think that's, you know, more of the Brad Wilcox argument that, hey, we need to convince people that getting married is a good thing and they should do it and more people should do it. So I don't, I actually, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can certainly see a case to be made for, for both sides. I mean, that does get to what, you know, I want to make sure we're able to talk about possible solutions, you know, to, you know, at least to the, I mean, I, I think you could say, even if you wanted to be agnostic about, um, in, you know, promoting one type of lifestyle or decision, it seems like at a minimum, it would be good to um, correct errors in thinking. So going back to your paper on the affordability of families, if it is, if that's the barrier for some people, if they think, well, I can't afford to have a family, um, not only does that have, you know, obviously economic implicate public policy implications, because what you what you have, and I think we're seeing this on both the left and the right, is 
effort, some kind of effort for the government to, you know, to release programs or whatever to make it more affordable. So if that's so if that if that calculus is wrong, then you know that might steer us in a in a direction of thinking public policy could solve a problem it can't. Um, um, but what do you think? Like what? So if it's not if it's not going to be some type of public policy because it actually is more affordable than people think, what do you think we can do to one change the view that it's unaffordable and bring people's perceptions closer to reality? Um, and two, like what? Um, assuming we think it's good for people to get married and have kids, start families. What do you think we could do to kind of change that messaging that this, you know, there are benefits to this. There is, there is good from this. Yeah. I, I do think that, um, I don't think there's a big role for government. Um, I will say that, um, I don't really buy into the argument, uh, that, you know, costs have increased so much that families are unaffordable and therefore government has to come in and subsidize, uh, family formation that I'm not, I'm not convinced by the data that that, that is necessarily true. So I think it is more of a, a kind of societal issue that as a society, if we believe um, that uh, more marriage is, is better for us as a society and more kids, then, then I think we need to you know, model that behavior and be honest about it with young people. Um, and this maybe is to kind of an Ian Rowe type approach that we have to be very clear, you know, if, um, if our elite, for lack of a better term, you know, kind of highly educated people, they're the ones actually who are getting married and who are having kids. Um, and yet the, the messaging you hear from them is not about marriage and not about having kids. It's kind of like, oh, well, you don't need to get married. You don't need to, you know, have kids. I, I'm not sure why that, why that is true, but um, I think that we should make it totally appropriate to talk about families with young people and with our own kids um, and, and stress the importance of getting married and being in a stable you know, relationship and having kids and staying married and how that's good for kids and good for society. Like, I think all of those messages are appropriate and we, we shouldn't shy away from them. Um, but to your point, I do think it's more of a family-based societal kind of issue as opposed to something that really has a government government solution. Yeah, I think in some ways is that just kind of highlights um, the challenge. I mean, I know, Clay, you did some research with Harris Poll uh, about a mm -hmm. year ago um, that asked, you know, kind of try to dig into why people aren't having kids. And and the one response that got, I think I, it was a plurality or it was a majority. Yeah, uh, 50, yeah majority. Yeah. The 54 percent said that they didn't want to have kids because they didn't want to lose their independence. Um which I get. I mean, you do lose your you do lose your independence in in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, interesting and important ways. Um, but it just seems like the message is it's all cost. You know, like here, yeah. in monetary cost, loss of earnings. So there's an opportunity cost. There's a cost of you know um, independence. Um, and I'm just, I guess this is something that I don't know uh, that if if you were to just tell someone actually there's benefits here too and they're and they're hard to measure but it really makes your life uh a lot more full and a lot better and and i think that you know this is something that you would probably should do or at least consider very seriously consider doing um 
I'm just, I'm a little skeptical that kind of just saying that is going to do a lot in terms of persuading. I really like your approach about modeling. I think that's probably the best thing that we can do uh, if this is sort of the goal that we're pursuing. Um, I just, this kind of ties back to the anxiety thing. You know, if you have kind of a more rational approach to this stuff, and then you couple that with a more risk aversion, um, you know, I, maybe the tide will just turn. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is something that is kind of, kind of work itself out. Uh, I know sometimes that's not always the most attractive way to frame it, but I do think that, you know, there is something to be said for, um, you know, there's some other voices coming out now and kind of challenging the way that we're thinking about this. So I think in some ways we're starting to see a little bit of a cultural turn here. Um, you know, with some, some recent books that have been coming out kind of challenging that, but, um, I think modeling is probably going to have to be the most important thing that we can do. Yeah. And I, I've wondered too, if, if it'll work itself out, (laughs) like you wonder if it, if, um, you know, you kind of hit a tipping point and then it does kind of start to change, uh, culture a little bit and you kind of move it back in, in the other direction. Um, but to your point about modeling, I think too, I think a lot of this does need to happen sort of within the family, um, you know, as parents, how do we talk to our kids about, um, you know, their, their future and and what that future looks like. And I think, you know, probably too many parents don't really talk about how, oh, well, you need to get married and, you know, you should have, you should get married before you have kids. And, you know, I think there's probably more of that messaging that can happen even within the family. Um, but and, and also I'll just say to your point about data, you know, I think there there's data to suggest people are also expressing feelings of, um, you know, loneliness, you know, mm-hmm. not having meaning in their lives. You know, there's certainly increases in mental health issues. Um, I think there is a connection between that and having, you know, family support, having kids, having, you know, all of, uh, all that's involved in that. Um, and it hasn't, that connection hasn't really been made in kind of the literature as much. Um, and then certainly the messaging that comes out of the research. Uh, but I do think that that's, um, you know, likely has a, a role as well um, in just kind of these feelings of, that people have had in deteriorating mental health over time. Um, because if you don't have that familial support, um, you know, it makes, just makes life harder and it makes, you know, the ability to deal with life's challenges even harder. Um, and I think that that, you know, connection could be probably made stronger. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, you know, going back to the, the Harris poll that, that, that Ben mentioned, one of the things that when I wrote an op-ed about those data that like what, what what the majority of Americans who didn't choose. So basically what we did is we surveyed all adult Americans who and um, or a national random sample um, or representative sample, I should say. And then we, you know, we had a, a subsample of those who don't have kids who haven't had kids. Right. And we asked them why. <laughs> and, you know, the most common answer was like, personal independence was something around the theme of personal independence, right? That it wasn't these other like fears. It wasn't that they couldn't afford them. It was like, they, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, they didn't want to be parents. Um, And so that's a preference thing. That's not something that I don't, I mean, that public policy, I don't think is going to change. We've seen some examples of, of governments in Asia, like Japan, I think trying pronatal 
Paul mm-hmm. basically trying to give people money to have kids. And from what I understand, it hasn't been particularly successful. Um, and so it, that is seems to be more of a, of a cultural thing. While at the same time, as you know, like it, we're seeing these other trends of growing anxiety, meaninglessness, loneliness that are clearly associated with family. Like I said, in my own work, and it's not just my work, like Pew Research Center has done global research on meaning. And, you know, the, that's where people get their meaning in life is from their family, right? More than anything else. And so you see this like disconnect between what actually leads to like a fulfilling, meaningful life and what people maybe think they should do with their lives. Um, so that's, I guess that's not really a good, a, a good question, ex- except to turn it into a question you know, do you agree? <laughs> yeah. Do you, I, yeah. Do you agree? And I guess B, do you agree? And um, also, like, if we're thinking about solutions, um, you know, one thing I, you know, I was thinking about when, we, you know, we we're prepping for this, and I wasn't really sure how to like what the best way to frame it was. But I'm not saying you're making this argument, but like, I mean, you look at your work, it's like um, people's perceptions of, of the affordability of families might be influencing their decisions right right so like if you think it's unaffordable to have a family then that might make you less likely to have a family but another way of thinking about it is like the reverse causal chain which is maybe people who just have a family that changes their economic views right like once you because ben and i were talking about this earlier there's so many things in life that you're sort of afraid to do because you don't know you just have a perception and you're Mm -hmm. like oh like i remember when my wife tried to talk me into doing yoga for years. I was like terrified. It's like, I'm not doing yoga. I did yoga. And I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Um, and so I wonder to what extent, like a lot of, uh, you know, going back to the anxiety thing, like to what extent, like some of this is just like, you just got to go out and lit. Like you just got to jump in, <laughs> take a leap of faith. And then you'll actually change your mind and be like, oh, it actually, you can make, you can make this work. And that actually might make you, economically more affluent right because at least for me i had kids when i was in grad school which you know a lot of people would say is not the the greatest time to have kids but it motivated me to finish my phd really quickly (laughs) because i was like you know i've got responsibilities here so i'm just you know that's a long way of saying i'm just curious if like um connecting these social trends of loneliness anxiety and meaning to you know to this like rational like thinking through process like to what extent do you think it would be helpful as a culture just to push people to be more like just to go for it, like to have a little more faith, and take a leap of faith and have a little more confidence and boldness and just go out in the world and start doing stuff? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think it gets to the point about the what was the term you knew, the capstone versus the cornerstone. Yeah, cornerstone. Like, yeah. right. Like, I think you don't we don't need to send a message that you have to have everything in place and, you know, fully you know, you have your lifestyle fully financed and you have, you know, savings and, you know, sometimes you do just have to jump in um, and and try to make it work. I mean, that's certainly what the, you know, my, my parents' generation, that's certainly mm-hmm. what they did um, and uh, for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, it is, it is sort of, I think this applies to so many things beyond just, you know, having families, but just this idea of, you know, living life. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes that does require, you know, taking a risk and making yourself a little bit uncomfortable for a while. 
Um, and, but those, that's all part of having life experiences. Um, and I do wish there was more messaging around that. I think there's too many messages about just, you know, things you shouldn't do (laughs) because it might be hard or, you know, you need to avoid this or avoid that. Um, and so I think we've gone a little bit overboard in that, that kind of messaging. And so I would like to see some of the other messaging come in of, you know, experience life, take a risk, um, you know, be smart about it. (laughs) But certainly, you know, that's how that's how you're going to have the most fulfilling life. Yeah, it's almost like an extreme form of like our helicopter parenting, like Mm -hmm. extend that out a little that safety is about a little bit and obviously be like, well, don't have kids or don't do this or you know what I mean? Like you, you see maybe the same um, maybe a parallel trend with when people talk about dynamism, economic dynamism, like people are like, are not as entrepreneurial perhaps because yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's risky to start a business. Well, in a way, starting a family is, a, you know, is an entrepreneurial activity. It's an act of creation. And yeah. so it's like, um, so those might be, even though they're different, you know, different life choices, they might implicate similar underlying psychological risk averse, you know, processes. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually, I've often thought about that issue of helicopter parenting and how that is playing out. Because if you think of when that became a thing, it is kind of those kids that were helicopter parented (laughs) are Mm -hmm. the ones who are like 20 20 and 30 now. And so I do wonder if that kind of plays a role. Um, Again, how do you measure Mm -hmm. that? I don't know. Um, But I do think that the way people were parented likely just changes um yeah their risk taking their how they view how they view things you know their level of comfort um with with taking risks uh and yeah so it's kind of like maybe my generation or even a little older we sort of um you know my kids are younger but kind of the what we what that generation thought was good parenting maybe in the long run <laughs> is not so much Right. Which, which could help explain the the point you made about the, the elite or like the more maybe more affluent people are, might be the ones actually starting families. Like if, if having kids is, comes to be thought of as a luxury good that you better make sure that you are really, really like padded economically to do, then that does seem to have socioeconomic implications that I'm not saying any anyone saying this consciously is, you know, like, oh, poor people shouldn't have kids. But that's kind of the message that you, if you read between the lines and a lot of, you know, the me- the media around this, it's just like, well, yeah, obviously we're seeing well-off people have families. So why are they not, why do they not see that as a good for everyone? Yeah. Um, and again, I don't think they would articulate it in like a mean way um, like that, you know, but it, it's just like that sort of the underlying assumption is like, well, if you can't afford it, it's too, like, if you can't afford it by like our perception of what, what what makes it affordable, then it's too risky for anyone below a certain economic like point to 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 do this. Yeah. No, that's a good point. But this is this is actually something I struggle with a little bit because we didn't talk about this, but one of the main drivers of the declining fertility rate in the US is a decline in teenage. Um, births. Mm. So the U.S. has seen a huge decline in um, teenage pregnancies and births, which obviously mm. is a very good thing. So that's um, a good example of not taking a risk. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and so we would encourage, you know, teenagers not to have 
babies um, for the most part. Um, But to your point, I think that it has maybe marriage in particular, which then leads to childbearing, has become kind of an elite sort of luxury good. And you wouldn't want to necessarily say, oh, yeah, poor people, you shouldn't have kids. I think the issue, though, is like the, the, the message around marriage has to be there because for low-income people, they're going to be, um, you know, much better off if they get married uh, and yeah. then have kids. Even if they're still low-income when they get married and start having kids, it just gives them a much better opportunity over the long run to be economically secure versus, you know, what we know correlates greatly with poverty is having children outside of marriage. Um, and so I think that 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 marriage piece is really key. Um, as well as, you know, focusing on let's let's keep fertility low among especially teenagers and unmarried uh, parents um, and really focus on trying to, you know, get people to recognize the importance of marriage and and childbearing. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You definitely need a balance between, you don't want people to be too adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes joke that, you know, there's, there's that decline in, in teen pregnancy, which is really great, but there's also a decline in dating. There's a decline yeah. in, you know, um, uh, younger people just working together like teen, at all. Teen, teenage jobs, right? Yeah. 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 T- teenage jobs is another one and all this kind of stuff. And it just makes me think, you know, somebody in the moral majority in the eighties, wished that teen pregnancy would decline <laughs> on a monkey paw and then now we're kind of reeling back from that but i think so what i'm getting from this is you know this is actually something you know russ roberts uh president now president of shalem college he wrote a book called wild problems and and he actually made some of the similar points that we hit on today about not trying to be so rational and calculate everything and try to view life less as like a series of calculations and more as like a journey that you can experience and I think that's that's some of what we've settled on here, but I, I do want to just close this out now and just ask, you know, Angela, you and and maybe you too, Clay. Um, you know, if you were if you were going to talk to someone that you knew who was maybe in their early twenties and kind of thinking through some of this stuff, uh, what advice would you give them? What would you tell them? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's um it's funny because I think the thirty year old version of me would tell a twenty year old something very different that now the like forty five year old version of me would tell. That them. is good to know. Okay, and it really stems from the fact when I was thirty, I didn't have kids yet, and now I have mm-hmm. kids and I have a family, and I do think your perception just completely changes. Um, and the thirty year old version of me was very focused on my career, you know, getting my education, making sure that I personally, individually, was economically sound. And so I had, I got that message that, hey, you need to have everything in place before you can even think about getting married um, and having kids. So, but the 30 year old version of me would probably have told a 20 year old the same thing. But I think now that I've had kids and I've experienced all of it, I would tell that 20 year old that, you know, the, the, to not be risk averse, to kind of jump in that life is more than just about pursuing kind of career and economic goals. Um, And that family, uh, now that I've experienced it, in my view, takes priority over all of those other things. Um, and trying to balance certainly is important. Um, but really, when you think about what a fulfilling life over the long term is, um, it, it's not so much about that job that you got. It's more about the people you surround yourself with, 
the family that you have and and who you spend your time with. Um, and so I would encourage that 20 year old to focus as much energy on finding, you know, that person to spend their life with and focusing on having kids as they do on their, their career and education. That's great advice. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, I actually, you know, my experience is, is, is different than yours and, um, unique and in, like increasingly unique in that my wife and I got married when we were 21 and had kids at 22. And so right after college. Um, and so when I started graduate school, I already, you know, I went to graduate school with a two-year-old and a three-month-old. And so um, it was obviously very, very difficult. But one, you know, one thing I noticed, which I touched on a little bit already, is how um, motivating that was. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think this necessarily, like, what I did doesn't mean that would work for everyone or is even a good idea for anyone. <laughs> but um, I did notice for me, it was a very like um, having a family um, was a very focusing experience. And I didn't screw around a lot in my twenties. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't like um, I didn't have a lot of time to just do whatever I wanted. It was like, I had laser like focus on goals. And again, I'm not saying to say that made my what I did was better or worse. Um, but I think that that's some, that message is, is kind of lost. Like we always, you know, it's like people always talk about what kids, Benny brought this up, what kids are going to cost you in terms of money, in terms of free time. But you see less of a focus on what kids are going to open up, what opportunities they're going to open up for you in terms of like motivation, purpose, you know, meaning, um, but also, you know, like, like social you know, social, like, you know, you, when you, you know, as you know, like when your kids go to school, like they, if they're in sports or play musical instruments or anything, you meet other parents, you get in, you know, so it's, it opens up a world beyond like your individual family unit as well. And I just think that that's, um, there's something really important about that, that we don't talk about these other rewards. Some of them aren't economically tangible, but, but some are, I mean, I'm, you know, I think that there's, we could definitely test if it's not already been tested, like whether or not having kids like increases people's income, like um, maybe uh, that's gotta be known, right? Like maybe, is that the one where it does for men, but not for women or like? What? Yeah, no, I actually think it does for both. For both. Um, you know, it's hard to tease out causation versus mm -hmm. correlation, but yeah, it, it does um, leads to higher income over time. So but yeah, but yeah, that's all to say. I agree with you. Like the, it, I would advise young people to they're some of the most like rewarding and also unexpected, like adventurous, mysterious, <laughs> interesting experiences that you have, um, you know, are often brought about by having like another human being that's your responsibility and it shifts your attention towards, you know towards that and opens up new doors for connection and for meaning I think that are that you wouldn't that you just wouldn't have otherwise all right well I think that's a great place to end it Angela thank you so much for joining us today I really really appreciate it well thanks for having me